This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to the Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by Isabel Hardman and James Forsyth. So as we count down the days to the autumn statement, one of the questions is over the pensions triple lock. James, the government had previously not committed to protecting that triple lock, but are we seeing actually movements that in fact they might? So the Times is saying today that uh, it expects that although no final decision has been taken, the current plan is that both benefits will rise in line with inflation and the triple lock will be preserved. I, I think the triple lock is so politically potent and pensioners are such an important part of the Tory demographic that I would be surprised if if it was scrapped. I mean, there is a longer term question about how affordable it is, because what the triple lot means is that the state will spend more on pensions uh, essentially every year. And with an ageing population, I mean, there, there, is a, there is a debate to be had about how long that can be kept going. But I think it would be a brave Chancellor in the yes minister sense of the word who who decided to get rid of it. Just look at the kind of backlash when Liz Truss kind of, as she was looking for some things to cut following the reaction to the mini-budget, started talking about abandoning the triple lock. Isabel, in recent days we've heard the government talk about how, you know, it'll be tough decisions that are coming up. It will be um, some tax rises and some spending cuts, but the overall feeling of the autumn statement they hope is to be fair. Do you think keeping the pensions triple lock is one of those fairness things? I mean, speaking of someone in their 20s who <laughs> is thinking, well, you know, what else are you going to cut that will impact my life? I think we can guess what your position on that is, Cindy. This is a really interesting fault line in the Conservative Party because they've been figures who've been warning for years. I mean, I remember interviewing Liam Fox back when David Cameron was Prime Minister about the the perils of committing to the triple lock um, in terms of the sort of black hole it creates and the intergenerational unfairness. As James says, you know, there's there's a political calculation to be made here. But I think what's really interesting is the, um, the promise that benefits, or the, the likelihood, sorry, that benefits will rise with inflation as well. Because... That, to me, shows that there has been a real shift in political and wider Mm. public opinion on welfare. And, you know, it used to be the case that for the Conservatives, they could, in the words of George Osborne, now back advising um, the Treasury, you could weaponise welfare and you could use it as a sort of political tool against the Labour Party to show that they were, you know, they were too generous on benefits. They just let people uh, rot on, um, you know, incapacity benefit rather than trying to help them back into work and so on. Whereas now, I, and I think this is partly as a result of, of COVID, lots of things are, there's much more of a recognition that you know, 40% of universal credit claimants are in work. So it's not a sort of strivers versus skivers division that we had you know, 10 years ago. There is much more sympathy for people who are receiving benefits because they're seen as being more likely to be nurses um, and so on. There's also an anxiety about the impact of the cost of living crisis on people who are on benefits. And I suspect that's because it is more closely linked now with uh, in the sort of public mind and MPs with people who are in work, who generally are sort of respected in society and you know you can have a very long conversation about the poor deserving poor blah and so on but um 
I think that there has been a really interesting shift there. And um, we would we probably wouldn't have been having this conversation 10 years ago. Uh, look, I, I think Isabel is clearly right that universal credit by 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 moving the idea that benefits are something that goes to people who are out of work ha- has shifted the dial. I, I, I still think there's going to be an interesting argument coming because I think one of the things you will see in the next few years is the number of people on out-of-work benefits is, is very high. The, 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 the kind of Fraser Nelson Spectator Data Team calculation has it at 5.3 million people. That is very considerable. How you get that down, I think, is going to be a big debate in the next two years. I think part of that is that lots of the conditionality got turned off during COVID. And so, you know, bringing, some of the, bringing the conditionality back is part of it. But I also think there's a, there's a very interesting element here, which, which um, uh, Isabel will be more expert on than I, which is, you know, how do you deal with this interaction between the people on out-of-work benefits at the moment and the NHS waiting list. I mean, I thought we, one of the interesting ideas that Chloe Smith had in her, her brief stint as Work and Pension Secretary was she was beginning to think about whether you could begin to move people of working age who were on the waiting list up the waiting list if that was the block to them returning to work. But I mean, there, I think this is one of the things that makes the situation so complicated at the moment is the way in which these various crises, you know, the, the, the NHS waiting list for, for physical health and anecdotal Anecdotally, what you hear from MPs, particularly mental health, is contributing to the rise in the number of people who, who are not working. Mm. Isabel, just on the economics of the thing, um, is the government, do you get the feeling that they're a bit more relaxed about the economic situation if they're able to say things like protect the triple lock, uh, rise benefits in line with inflation? Because we're still coming at a time when the economic situation is not looking great. Um, the Bank of England today has just said that it will raise interest rates again. What's the situation here? Is the mood better or worse or just much of the same? I think there is some uh, satisfaction is probably too strong a word. But I think those in the Treasury and number 10 who are working on this are quite pleased with the way that the doom and gloom briefings over the past few weeks have rolled the pitch, to use a term from Liz Truss's brief tenure, which was what she didn't do before her mini-budget. I think we are all suitably terrified about what uh, is going to be cut, that that there is a possibility that things may look a little bit more generous. But look, it's going to be a really tough autumn statement. Uh, There are lots of secretaries of state who have had to fight really, really hard to stop really important, as they see it, frontline services from being severely cut. And James, it's now day four of the um, Gavin Williamson round. Downing Street has confirmed that an investigation has been launched into his comments to Wendy Morton, but this comes at a time when more things have come out. Can you tell us about the latest comments that have surfaced and uh, your your take on it? So there are a couple of developments. One is that that Wendy Morton, these complaints are, are not public, but Friends of Wendy Morton are saying that she will also refer him to to Parliament's own grievance procedure. So there'll be a CCHQ investigation into it, a parliamentary investigation into it. And uh, Dan Street have not shut down the possibility of the Propriety and Ethics team in the Cabinet Office investigating what at the moment are anonymous allegations that he told a, a civil servant when he was working in the Ministry of Defence that they did to, to slit their throat. And so I think there are more of these things than they are they are gathering. It is on the Ministry of Defence allegation, 
Yeah, the the the, the defence that is being made by by allies of Gavin Williamson is that there was no formal complaint made when he was there at the time. There was no formal complaint made when he was education secretary about his behaviour. So we kind of wait to see. I think we. I think, but I think there is there is clearly one of these uh, Westminster kind of feeding frenzy starting about this, and then there is also this this very difficult to defend publicly question, which is the kind of the whole culture of. Westminster and the way people in Westminster talk to people, I think people will have less sympathy for people talking to officials in this way than they will for people talking to the chief whip in that way. I mean, chief chief whips tend to know how to put a bit of stick about, as it, as, as the saying has it. And so I think it is probably this these allegations about what he said to officials, which is the the the, the most problematic thing for him at the moment. Um, Isabel, on, on James' point about it being a feeding frenzy, I was quite surprised to see someone like Nikki Morgan, for example, um, coming out and also saying, you know, I'm not surprised that these allegations are around because she's one of those people who generally have been quite supportive of numerous governments. Um, so clearly he's got a lot of enemies that he's made over his time in Parliament. So, I mean, is the situation sustainable? Is he just going to have to resign? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there are certainly a lot of people who are quite happy to chat either uh, on the record or off the record about their experiences uh, with Gavin Williamson. I think he's got a um, a style of, uh, he had a style of whipping, he had a style of, of just doing politics, um, which was quite rough and ready and performative as well. And, uh, you know, that did annoy quite a lot of people. Um, I think it's quite interesting the number of women who seem to have been annoyed by that because they see it, his behaviour as being quite um, a sort of immature boy sort of behaviour, um, which I think is quite interesting. But the question of whether he goes or not, it really depends whether... Well, I think there's a, there's a few factors. One is, does Rishi Sunak want to keep him as a lightning rod? Uh, same with Suella Braverman. You know, you can sort of deflect all the negativity about other things and actually the toxic atmosphere within the Tory party hasn't gone away so you might as well funnel it towards somebody else rather than uh, the Prime Minister or does Rishi Sunak start to worry that people will question his own judgment in appointing uh, these people there's a party management thing here as well so with Suella Braverman it's it's a little bit clearer because you know they obviously appear to have done a deal uh, whereby she backed him for uh, the leadership and she got reappointed as as Home Secretary. With Gavin Williamson, it's a bit murkier, which is really a very sort of Gavin Williamson-esque words. Often, you know, he was was reported as saying um, under Theresa May that he could finish her off if he wanted to. And he's very much that sort of operator. And, um, you know, do you want Gavin Williamson inside your tent or outside your tent? Uh, I think is one of the, the calculations that has to be made as well. It's really interesting also talking to people, not just since Wendy Morton's complaint has become public, but also actually during the summer leadership contest. The number of Tory MPs I talked to who decided not to back Rishi Sunak, not because they disagreed with him or because they disliked him personally, but because they didn't like the people around him. And Gavin Williamson was one of the names who came up a lot from MPs who decided to go for Liz Truss instead. Mm. Isabel and James thanks very much and thanks very much for listening